Hello, and welcome back to Fox Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-hosts, Wayne and Monica. How's it going, guys? Hey, Mav. Hey, Mav. Monica, you haven't been here in a while. Wait, actually, I say that. Wait, you haven't been here in a while, but maybe you have. I don't Last week was just Time travel podcast. I cannot do I mean, okay. We've been doing this show for like 280 something episodes. Oh, yeah, we're closing in on 300. My other show has had 140. Or so. I, like, I'm on podcasts literally all the time and I don't remember stuff anymore. So, yeah. but I don't think I've talked to you in person in a couple of weeks, Monica. So, welcome back. <laughs> and you know remember. what, Mav? I think that the episodes that we keep appearing on together are the ones where we make each other through things in some yeah. version of it's good question mark, and then we just yeah. keep exchanging because I think the last time I was here was we watched the Riverdale finale. Yes, the oh, yeah. um, the very good, excellent Riverdale finale, and then. Because you are, I don't know, not a good friend, you've decided to make me watch. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I kind of thought maybe you were having some withdrawals now that your favorite show ever of all time had ended. And Uh, I thought I was being an excellent friend and filling the void for you. Okay, okay. So before we introduce the guest, I just want to say... so I own this movie. I own the DVD. And I swear I love Rosario Dawson. I love Rachel Lee Cook. I think they're both great actresses. There are other people in this film too as well. But like the two of them in particular, I am a big fan now and I was a big fan at the time. So I'm positive I have tried to watch this film before. I clearly did not get all the way through it. I like at, while watching, I was like, oh my God, I, I did not enjoy this movie. <laughs> Um, so just for the listeners, what we're going to talk about today, I guess, is we're going to talk about the film Josie and the Pussycats 2001. And this is an episode of, is this a good movie? And spoilers? No, it is not. But uh, <laughs> fair. Um, but before we get too far into it, because because again, I might be in the minority. Monica, you brought a guest. I did bring a guest. And frankly, Mav, I did the same thing that I did last time, which is when I made us watch Sucker Punch and said, is Sucker Punch a good movie? I think it is. And I stacked the deck with people who agreed with me. I went for another guest that I knew was going to have an opinion similar to mine, which is that Josie and the Pussycats is kind of an anti-capitalist cinematic masterpiece. So I really took the fact that our show was supposed to be an after bar conversation at a conference to heart. And I brought somebody that I met, I'm pretty sure, at a happy hour at a conference. So Nick Miller, welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Thank you. And we did indeed meet at a uh, happy hour after a conference in which I spent the entire time gushing about your Dazzler cosplay, if I'm not mistaken. So um, (laughs) that that was our first encounter. And I I will sort of point out that I somehow also only managed to get invited on to podcasts in which I disagree with Mav. Um, So this is an old hat for me, I feel. Um, 
I want to so point you've out. You've been on my other show. You've been on GGW. Did we disagree? I don't actually remember because, as we have seen, I do so many podcasts that I forget like immediately what we were talking about. So I don't actually remember which episode of GGW you were on. Did we disagree on something? Which episode did you do? So I mean, I, disagree might be a little bit harsh, but generally speaking, you're like, "This thing is terrible," and then I'm like, "No, no, no. There's something good we can do with this." And then you're like, "No, no. It's actually terrible." And I'm like, "No, but I think there's something we can do with this that's productive and useful." Well, I will agree. There's things that we can do that are productive. Productive and useful for this horrible movie that Monica made us watch because she doesn't like us. <laughs> Just to let you know sort of where I fall on this, um, Monica invited me to do this. And um, I remember the fact that I actually have a playlist on Spotify that is titled The Greatest Film Ever. Martin Scorsese Can Fight Me. And it is only songs from Josie and the Pussycats, the film in 2001. So um, if we want to get a sense of sort of where we're at on this, like this is a film that I adore. Um, and I cannot wait to have this conversation. So, <laughs> Well, then. <laughs> Wayne, I think you've got to put your cards down and you've got to let us know. <laughs> I, I liked it better than I expected to. I'd never seen it before. I, I, I didn't grow up with it. I didn't watch it back in the day. It's not something I have that nostalgic connection with. I, I found a lot about it enjoyable. And I think a lot of that just came out of my fandom for the comics and the source material was based mm -hmm. on my interest in the music industry uh, and the commentary on that. Uh, there, I'm, I, this is one of the rare occasions where I made a small handful of notes of things I want to want to mention that just, I don't know how deep they are or anything, just things that I caught and amused me and, and want to mention. But we, we will get to those as we talk about the movie. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so okay so maybe i'm in the minority we'll see again cards on the table i am a big josie and the pussycats fan um not just because i'm a fan of riverdale we were talking off air several times on Riverdale episodes, but I think in the past as well, Wayne had talked about as a child being a fan of the Archie's cartoon. Um, mm -hmm. I've seen the Archie's cartoon. And just, I mean, the comics in general. I mean, they were just yes. omnipresent when we were growing right, up. Right. So I've read lots of Archie comics. I've seen the Archie cartoon before, but I don't know if I watched it regularly. But if I had watched it regularly, I hadn't watched it regularly in 40 something years. Well, and also, I, I, given the time frame of that show it was a little before your conscious awareness the, the right. early seasons of it you would have seen it in syndication right right uh, and it just continuously you know like cbs used to just rerun old cartoons all the time and um i do remember very well the josie and the pussycats cartoon um which ran before i was born and so there's two seasons there's josie and the pussycats and then there's josie and the pussycats in outer space both of which i'm big fans of the second season the outer space season i adore that was 1972 so again before i was born but i watched it in syndication and i went back for this episode and not only did i watch the film i watched old episodes of the archies prepare myself and then of both josie and the pussycats the cartoon and josie and the pussycats in outer space which I continue to love the Archie's cartoon unwatchable. Oh my God. It was so bad. <laughs> the voice acting is horrid. Um, and in particular, I found both the Betty and Veronica characters on the Archie cartoon horribly vapid and just like annoyingly. So, so I did not like re revisiting the Archie's cartoon, but I did very much enjoy revisiting Josie and the Pussycats. I will say that watching the Josie and the Pussycats cartoon though, because of all the travel there required a lot of, I, I watched it. I, I watched, I watch it periodically with my kids who actually really enjoy the sort of old animated series 
but there's a lot of like having to say, oh, you know, like, let's just talk about how they're referring to or drawing other cultures in this moment, because oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those. It doesn't hold up well in that regard, but um, it's otherwise, I think, a very enjoyable animated series. It is not kind to Asian people is what you're saying. No, <laughs> no, it's not. That is really that's a better way of putting it. Yes. <laughs> So I, I feel a little obligated in my, one of my roles here is, is Tommy's got a little bit of history on it. Uh, Josie was uh, a comic book originally, when near, like late 1950s, early 1960s, that's probably, I don't have the date right in front of me. It was a companion piece to Archie Comics, which was successful, and a, a lot of different companies were, were putting out comics of that sort. Josie was created by Archie artist Dan DiCarlo, who, if you have an image of Archie Comics in your brain, you probably are picturing Dan DiCarlo, while there were yes. a lot of artists mm-hmm. he he is the, the RG artist he's the definitive style that pretty much anybody who came on to the book after him would just handed his style guide and said draw like dan the first uh, the first issue of it's josie is february 1963 okay um and josie is, is based on his wife uh, whose name was uh i looked this up josie dumont uh and she was a redhead and he based the character at least physically on her i don't know how wacky his wife was in real life <laughs> but uh but that's the background uh so, and and the the whole band thing didn't really come about until the late sixties when that's right. You know, success of so originally just, she's not a she's not a singer at all. It, originally, yeah. it's a companion book to Archie and and old old issues of Josie. I could easily sum up as what if Archie was a girl? Yeah, yeah, pretty not, much. Not, yeah, it's not a story about Betty or Veronica. It's the main character is Josie instead of the main character being Archie, mm-hmm. but it's basically the same kinds of stories. She's a kind of popular kind girl. Of style. She's got like, you know, a love triangle. She's got, you know, it's, yeah. but it's, yeah, she's, it's, it's doing the, it's doing yeah. Archie type stories, but with, and, um, and, with a female. With no Valerie. Like a male. Yeah, yeah. With no Valerie. Originally right. her, her other friend was Pepper who much like Charmian and peanuts just disappeared. Yeah. Um, Pepper is a supporting character on the Katie Keene television show yeah. that was a spinoff to Riverdale. I, I have a book about Pepper I want to do, but uh, <laughs> I, I have a theory. <laughs> no, I'll get to later uh, if we have time. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and then you know, with just suddenly you know, there was you know, the, the 60s and the music explosion and the youth explosion. And you know, as a, a child watching Saturday morning TV, it was like early MTV. Every cartoon would have a musical break you know every yeah, group of adventurers yeah. formed a band yeah so and, so, and Archie and, who had the archies archie had yeah, the archies. Right. yeah archie had the archies and they brought valerie in and you know and effort at, at, at diversification um and and pepper, and pepper just disappeared mm-hmm. so so that's my my little uh here's the background on josie the comic yeah. and valerie is invented in 1969 right before the comic becomes Josie and the Pussycats. So they integrated the comic just as they were starting the band scene. Right. So, so, well, well, I guess let's jump into the movie. Monica, this was your movie. This is your idea. Tell us, give us your movie. Your whys. (laughs) Um, So I didn't have any of that context. Um, The way that I came across Josie and the Pussycats was I watched it as a child. Like this, this movie came out in an era of I'm still listening to probably CDs or cassette tapes of Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and Destiny's Child, right? Like this was very much of the Mm -hmm. pop like group era 
which I loved in terms of music. So this fit right within the demographic. And I just remember as a kid, this being like really fun movie, but also this idea it felt like I was watching something that I hadn't seen before or heard before in terms of ideas of product placement. What's that? Like um, that it was teaching me new things about the world that made me understand capitalism, corporations, marketing machines in ways that felt accessible for me as a child to question advertisement or why I liked the things that I liked in a way where that message was incredibly relevant and helpful as a preteen who's starting to actually have their own babysitting money and be able to decide what to spend it on for the first time. So there was something about this hitting where the message of the film was very much something that I could relate to as an original viewer. But I hadn't watched the movie since. Uh, I knew that it was something that really informs me because all of my research is about pieces of cultural capital, whether it comes from fashion and thinking about ideas of how product placement might exist in less overt ways. I, I think about the ways that we have shop your TV apps, right? That allow you to dress like your favorite characters on television. because You know that they got that shirt from Nordstrom, even though it doesn't say Nordstrom on it. This has always been something that's very interesting to me. So I had the sense that We've talked about Arrow Fashion Blog and, and Riverdale Fashion Blog. Yes, and, yes. exactly. <laughs> of, and Gossip Girl and uh, and Sex in the City and, and the ways that marketing can be more than just labels and logo placement. So I think that this movie like imprinted on me like and my very young brain at a pivotal age. And then it just became who I am as an adult. So I wanted to make a bunch of adults that maybe know more about comics and more about the music industry watch it to, to hear if it's having sort of those same like effects in terms of is it an effective conversation for you within pop culture discourse? Is it working in terms of our society of the spectacle, in terms of all of our Marxist theorists that I now have in terms of language to talk about what was just a really great, uh, fun little radical movie for me as, as a kid, right? Um, and I gotta say that this was one for me that actually was better as a rewatch um, because I was an adult that now could understand the jokes, right? Like the fact that mm -hmm. we are opening this movie and I realized that the hit single that the boy band is singing is about anal sex. That one did not for me as an eight-year-old, and it is fucking funny now. Like, <laughs> okay, so I, I will say um, I, I rewatched this, or I re again, I'm not sure if I ever watched it the first time all the way through because I know I must have turned it off before I finished it before yesterday, um, but a couple of days ago I watched a film that I think will come back up. When we do our end of the year review, I watched a, a documentary on Little Richard, uh, Little, Little Richard's I Am Everything, which talks about the trials and tribulations of the music industry being a black queer man. And I'm, I'm enough into pop culture and to the music history that the things that this film was trying to do, including the anal sex, by the way, Tutti Frutti. Also a song about anal sex. People miss that. And those uh, those blues guys singing about being a backdoor man. Not exactly yeah, subtle either. Not, exa not subtle. So. But uh, the point I'm making is I, I, I agree that this film is trying to be a tome on the failings of 
late stage capitalism in the entertainment industry. Um, I know this this movie bombed, by the way, it's a movie, movie bombed massively at the box office and it's developed a little bit of a cult classic following and the directors, Deborah Kaplan and Harry Elfont, they've, they've talked about how they ran into Bono of U2 like years later. And he's like, oh, I love that movie. I think it's brilliant about the music. And, and so, so like, so they felt validated. They're like, oh, maybe people didn't get it. I get it. I understand the argument they're trying to make. I, I don't like I don't think it's subtle. I just don't think the movie's very good. And and yeah. like I like I I know the acting of Rosario Dawson very well. Now Rosario's gone on to be become a huge star. She's having a moment today doing like a soap mm-hmm. and stuff. And Rachel Lee Cook, less so, but also Tara Reed. I've followed all of their careers. I don't think this is any of their best work or even possibly yeah. good work. Like even for that era. She's All That, which Rachel Lee Cook is in, I think is a much better piece of cinema, even if I do agree with the message that this movie is trying to do. So I think it's there. Like Nick was saying earlier about, are there things we can do with this movie? Yes, I do think it is an interesting cultural construction. I just don't think it's very good. Well, I think there's also a problem here, though, with trying to separate the idea that there's a good message, but it's not well acted, because I think that the lack of subtlety is largely the yeah. point throughout yeah. much of this film. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, well, it's, yeah. it's intentional. Yeah, and <laughs> I, think that, I think that the satire that is part of this actually relies very heavily on the most wooden types of performances, the mm-hmm. exceedingly sort of drawn out, very poorly shot close-ups where there's mm-hmm. wind going through someone's hair, where there's clearly no space for wind, et it cetera, is. right? And I think that in that sense, the film does a, a pretty darn good job of that. And I, I would argue, in fact, that I think that for some of them, right, I mean, I think Tara Reid takes that sort of tired trope of the ditzy genius and mm-hmm. does exactly what Melody does, which is yeah. she says things that seem nonsensical or ditzy or not mm-hmm. observant and then drops a bomb on you in terms of an insightful comment. Yeah. Yeah. Which she delivers those lines beautifully. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't think that that is a problem yeah, with her acting and, there. I agree with that entirely. Yeah. I just, yeah, she, I, she, she does exactly she, what she was asked to do. She yeah, does. Yeah, she it, she yeah. reads like, like Melody from the comic. Absolutely. And I just have to interject is anybody else bothered that the character named Melody is responsible for the rhythm? <laughs> I just, yeah, it, it's, I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm not saying that they've messed up, which is what I want to be clear. I like when I say it's bad acting, it's not like, I don't think Rosario, Rachel or Tara did a bad job. I don't think they failed. The problems are not their fault. It just like they succeeded at creating something that didn't hit for me personally, because Mm -hmm. like I understand that it was intentionally not subtle, but the not subtlety didn't work in a way that just for comparison, Sucker Punch, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, did work. Right. So Sucker Punch has problems where people who criticize um, Sucker Punch are like, Oh my God, it is so corny and obvious and misogynistic. And, and, and the answer, Monica and I talked about this on the show is yeah, yeah, it's those things. That was the point of Sucker Punch and Sucker Punch largely worked for me in ways that this one just didn't. And maybe it's because I have such love for the characters and, and it just didn't hit the exact way. Um, like, I don't think Rachel Lee Cook's Ra- Josie comes across as Josie to me at all. In fact, I think I want to interject and, and be like, I want to pull the comps for this movie, right? Like, mm-hmm. I want to, when we think about Josie and the Pussycats and in terms of its success compared to other similar films of that era, 
immediately I mm-hmm. think of Spice World and immediately I think of yes. Idiocracy, right? Like Spice okay. World is about a girl group. It is meant to be satire. It is meant to be about celebrity, right? It is mm-hmm. really badly acted. It also stars Alan Cumming. Like none of these things are accidents. Idiocracy oh my God, is about it does. throwing. Oh my God. I did not catch on that Alan Cumming. I mean, yes. He's the manager in both you said of that. those movies. He's the manager in both movies. Yes. <laughs> oh my God. Alan Cumming is the manager in Spice World. Yes, he is. Oh, okay. Sorry. And, and when we think about like <laughs> idiocracy and we throw in all of our ideas about like corporate capitalism ruining society, like both of those movies did less well when it comes to Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb scores than Josie and the Pussycats does. And honestly, mm-hmm. Spice World, like well, as a as a mockumentary, is kind of boring. Like it's one where, as much as I love the Spice Girls, and as much as I love what that movie is trying to do, it is a much less effective version. I think that the fact that Josie and the Pussycats is pure camp that is hitting you on the head and is making all of these funny little choices about being like, yes, there should be wind. Obviously, there would be wind. Everything is a music video. Like music videos have wind. Like it, it, I think it's working for me when we think about this as a genre film. And I think that your attachment to Josie and the Pussycats being Josie and the Pussycats is maybe the reason yeah. you don't like this movie. Well, Right, because it is a different type of film. And if I can sort of also jump in there with that, I think one of the reasons that I think it's become a cult classic for for many of us is because, you know, and this word gets overused, I know, but it it does feel prescient, right? Mm -hmm. If you think about sort of our media narratives today in 2023, and you think about the rise of somebody like Donald Trump, right? We live in a world in which this being knocked over the head is ever present and completely lacking in subtlety. And yet, and yet we have a, a country that thrives on that sort of narrative, right? That is sort of literally repeating the same words over and over again Mm -hmm. as if they're going to gain new meaning. And so in that sense, right, again, it's it's doing very different work than Josie and the Pussycats did as comics characters, at least in the Mm -hmm. older versions. I would argue that Marguerite Bennett's is actually closer to the film than we might talk about in terms of modern comics, but sure, again, sure. I think that there is, I think there's a, there's a, a purpose to that, that I, I think Monica's point to compare this with other films like Idiocracy and Spice World actually does reset maybe some of our expectations for what Josie and the Pussycats should be. Just so we don't get comments, I will point out it did much better than Spice World. Idiocracy was actually a critical darling. No one saw it. Idiocracy was, was a commercial absolute failure, but Idiocracy has got like a 70 something percent on Rotten Tomatoes that people loved Idiocracy. The people the 20 people who saw idiocracy <laughs> loved it. <laughs> like it was always people were, people got it um i will agree with monica's point though about how spice world i think spice world is trying to do some of the same work but i'll tell you the difference and i'll tell you why i because like, i actually like spice world quite a bit and here's why i like spice world the acting in spice world is shit <laughs> it is like Monica is 100% correct. But what makes Spice World work for me is because even if they say that, that it was satire now, and even if some people in the film Spice World knew they were doing satire and thinking back, Alan Cumming absolutely knew what he was doing. The leads of Spice World did not know that. And it's quite clear in their performance. What makes Spice World work for me is the absolute sincerity of this really horrible attempt to do hard day's night like it's that's what it i mean that's what it is it's like literally 
Spice World to me lives and dies on the fact that the five of them are doing the best they can <laughs> with this with this material that's not great. Whereas this, I felt like it didn't just feel wooden. It felt like Rosario, Tara, and Rachel knew that the movie was kind of not hitting the way it was supposed to. Like it's it, it's not just my attachment to them. It it didn't feel like it, it felt like they were reading obvious lines because the lines were supposed to be obvious and it didn't work for anybody they they didn't believe in it enough to sell it to me i think is what it came and down I think to that if you watch their reunions like the 20-year reunion and stuff like that mm-hmm. where you've got tara and stuff together like i think that necessarily holds up and at least in terms of their perspective on being in the film possible, their own sort of narrative of that yeah mm-hmm. I, okay i this next part i may be really reaching here but i'm gonna go someplace and and i this was something i wanted to bring up but this the this conversation is i think made it it's in the last three minutes made me think of, of more connections than i thought um speaking of documentary slash mockumentary uh band kind of things so early in the, the movie and let me know if this is a reference i'm not getting because i i know what it makes me think of josie's wearing a t-shirt that says sid s-i-d is that a specific I, reference for anybody i think it's the sex pistols i assumed uh, okay that's that's my assumption when i see sid i think of sid vicious and yeah, that's that's what i that's what i thought it was and, but I don't and the know. Sex Pistols, part of, you know, notorious part of their story is how they were exploited by their manager, Malcolm McLaren, and Sid very specifically being mm-hmm. exploited by Malcolm McLaren to the point of it killed him. You know, like his his bad decisions and heroin and everything else, but the exploitation and everything he was thrown into did not help that situation. So there's a, a documentary from the early 1980s uh, produced by Malcolm McLaren that purports to be the true story of the Sex Pistols. It's called The Great Rock and Roll Swindle. Okay. And based on the title alone, this is Malcolm McLaren's version of what actually happened, which paints him as the guy who brought them fame and all the stuff. Mm-hmm. It kind of overtly acknowledges that it was his plan all along to just exploit them, make money, and they didn't matter to him at all. And it's when it comes to the Sid stuff, it's really rather sad. And Malcolm, if if he believes any of this, he's a monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if he actually did any of this, but it's it's also there is <laughs> this level is of, in the, yeah, Josie is yeah. in the Sid vicious story. If you know the story of right. the sex pistols yeah. in this film, Josie is in the. It is very. It's not yeah, subtle. It, it is very yeah, obviously right. repeating because these things. Yes. Essentially, uh, Malcolm fired the most talented member of the Sex Pistols. Um, Glenn, Glenn Matlock was the primary songwriter, uh, the, the one in the band who had genuine musical talent, at least to begin with. Um, and and Malcolm didn't want him around. Sid was a mm-hmm. more marketable character. He was a walking disaster who couldn't play. He was an addict, but on stage, he he was good looking. And and Malcolm pushed that image of Sid and pushed the self destructive image mm-hmm. to the point that eventually Sid self destructed. And and I just when I saw that T shirt, all of that came to mind. And mm-hmm. In watching it, I wasn't even thinking of the documentary rock, Great Rock and Roll Swindle, but as we're talking, it's like, oh my God, that's right in there. It's it's the producer telling his version of the story, and it's so obviously fictionalized. Mm-hmm. And right. it's saying, I mean, the plot of this film is she's going to be the star. It's not the Pussycats. It's Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and and if eventually we have to, you know, kill her in a plane crash or a heroin overdose, why mm-hmm. so be it? Mm-hmm. Right. And that I think is, I mean, that's one of those moments, again, where Alan Cumming is jumping in there immediately, or I guess, sorry, Wyatt Frame is jumping in there yeah. immediately and saying, we're making this decision based on market data, right? But also, yeah. I think it's really telling that it gets pointed out by Valerie that, like, that's not actually true. 
so he's making that decision on false market data, which seems mm-hmm. like the most real thing and the most early two thousands thing that I could possibly imagine. Because um, and this I didn't sort of mention this before, but I watched this film. I was in the middle of college, and I was partway through at the time being an advertising major. So like yeah. all of the things that they're talking about in this film yeah. at the moment that we watched this was like, oh yeah, no, absolutely. We're talking about sort of the faking of market data to make decisions, right? We're talking about the ways in which product placement is and is not being used in various advertising forms, et cetera, right? And so I think that, again, Josie and the Pussycats, I just mentioned a minute ago that it was prescient, but also in some ways it's deeply a product of its time um, mm-hmm. and very, mm-hmm. very built into that. Um, and if I can actually just keep the mic for just a second, I want to throw in one more connection we might make here and one that nobody will like, but that is, I've actually taught this film alongside the reading of David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which I think yeah. is an interesting comparative moment there. Um, Infinite Jest obviously came out in 96, I think, which was, you know, a few years prior to the production of this. But again, it's all about the addictive possibilities of entertainment, the weaponizing of entertainment, sort of government interest in the weaponizing of entertainment, right? Um, often using that for jingoistic purposes. Um, you know, this idea of there being this samizdat, this sort of dangerous entertainment that could literally kill you in, in ways which the Mega Sound 8000 sort of echoes back to that in certain ways. Like, I think there's a lot happening here in this late 90s, early 2000s moment about the power of entertainment that is shifting and then shifted around the Y2K moment, right? But I think it's also deeply tied up in other deeper, different types of conversations about what is the purpose of and the limits, what are the limits of entertainment for a society? Um, what is the role of government in entertainment, et cetera? And I think those things are very much built into that time period. And that, that mm-hmm. makes me think of the the movie Videodrome from what, 1983. It's looking that up. And yeah, same kind of thing. It, they're specializing in sensationalist programming and uh, Debbie Harry's in that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just like, and once I'm looking up as I'm talking, it's like Videodrome. It's, it's very much the idea of you know, tagline is Videodrome. First, it controls your mind, then it destroys your body. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there's some thematic links here as well, which uh, yeah, I mean, this, this came to let's mind 30 real. seconds ago, so it's not well thought out. Yeah, but like, let's be <laughs> real. Like, I mean, did I actually have like a Pavlovian response when they mentioned Mr. Movie Phone? Absolutely, I did. Right? Like, <laughs> like, that is a well-chosen well, moment when he does all of our subliminal messaging. I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, right? Like, well, I, I literally I, felt I, like I was, you know, being talked to in that moment. And I had one of those moments at, at the near the end with uh, the character Fiona Parker Posey, who I think is marvelous in pretty much anything I've seen her in. Agreed. There's a moment. There's a moment. She's standing there, and you know, she's she's one of the villains of the piece. She is the villain of the piece, I suppose. Um, and she's standing there, and three guys are standing behind her wearing t-shirts to say Fiona, and that's straight out of the Batman TV show. She was there mm-hmm. with her henchmen wearing t-shirts that had their names on or had her name on mm-hmm. it. Yep. And just visually, it's like, oh, that is such a that has to be a direct reference. That is not accidental. Mm-hmm. And and, and you would, know the, the Batman TV show just prompted just massive um, selling of product. It was so successful in the the sixties and, and sure. millions of dollars of ink revenue from from merchandising. Yeah. And since you mentioned loving Parker Posey, I just want to throw out a quick shout. I I cannot remember who said this. I've carried this quote with me for like eons because I love Parker Posey. Um, and I've had this long series of fights about whether or not she is a quote unquote manic pixie dream girl, which is a whole other story. But um, I remember. <laughs> One critic, and I don't remember when this was, said that one of Parker Posey's best abilities was the ability to contain multiple emotions in a single facial expression. Um, and that was like, and in this film, like you also see it, right? Like mm-hmm. it's just like her ability to do that is one of the things that I love dearly about her as an actor. So anyway, yeah. onward with the film, but I want to shout out to Parker Posey as well. So yeah, mm-hmm. if you're listening, Parker. Um... <laughs> 
I did assume everything that happened was on purpose. I mean, I didn't think there were any accidents in the film. So like I like I didn't love it. I just thought I thought everything was so on the nose is what I think. It, what I think, which mm-hmm. I, I get that it was supposed to be. But it's just that's that's not the you know, it's sort of like when I don't like horror movies where I'm like, OK, yeah, I, I understand. I just didn't care. So I thought it was like that. So this is for Monica. Like, I don't watch it and go, you like this? What's wrong with you? Other than for the context of the show where I'm making fun of you because, you know, we do a show. Um, but but like in all, in all seriousness, it's not like I go, um, you know, what's wrong with you? I, you know, because because I do love Riverdale, right? Like the thing that it's trying to do, the satire that this film is trying to do. I just think there's a better way of doing it. I just spent six years watching I mean, it. I think that this is one where... Like, we really do have to put it back within the zeitgeist of its time, like, in order to yeah. understand the brilliance of yeah. the satire itself. Like, because we, mm-hmm. I, it's 2001. I think that, it's pre, pre 9 11, 2001. It's like literally, it's literally a few months pre 9 11. It's, um, this is this movie, I think, comes out in April. And this movie, I think we are so much more aware, especially as we have conversations about the way that Facebook and Instagram sell us ads, right? Like, that we understand this idea of being so inundated and we understand that content creators have corporatized everything like we we are very aware and very jaded consumers at this point something about this film the fact that we are surrounded by diet coke in the era where britney spears makes pepsi super bowl ads right like we are Mm -hmm. surrounded by trl when that is the thing that everyone comes home and watches after school Mm -hmm. we are Mm -hmm. in the abercrombie and fitch era where everyone dresses the same when you go to school like there Mm -hmm. is supposed to be very much this cultural moment of homogenization that doesn't Mm -hmm. really exist in our like in our TikTok Gen Z era that celebrates individualism, right? <laughs> and so part of you don't think it does, I don't know. So part of this film, you I think, think that doesn't exist. Like part of the commentary that it's making is based on sameness, but based on our familiarity as audience members with all of the product placement that we are inundated with, not just in the film, but within our everyday lives. In the mm-hmm. the products that are picked are also the things that are actually the most popular for the viewers and consumer audience of the release date of that film. And, yeah. and that is part my, my, of what makes fav- this my... such a good satire is because we understand that we are very much guilty as viewers and audience members of also, if we like this movie that is about all of these things that we think are popular, and we recognize all of these things that we think are cool and popular, we realize that we are also just like, the, the sheeple who have put on the kitty ears, right? Like, um, yeah. and that's why I'm like, no, this is really good because I think I really enjoy a movie that like hates its audience in the same way that Sucker Punch does. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think with that, in that context there, when you're talking about this sort of awareness of product placement, right? I think that we could also put this in conversation with, we are at this point in time, right? Wrapping up series like Buffy. We are just starting series like Gilmore Girls, which are all similarly invested in the sort of cultural Easter eggs that we get bombarded by in a film like Josie and the Pussycats. I mean, this is, this is a Taylor Swift song in film form, right? Like where you Mm -hmm. almost need to like keep a notebook of the number of Easter eggs and cultural references that are being thrown at you. Um, but they're all easily recognized. And in fact, I think it's almost overwhelming how many 
sort of cultural references are happening at any given moment in this film, which I think yeah. is the point, right? That well, we are overwhelmed is, by yeah. this. Well, so this is what, so I, I would push back. Oh, I actually agree with most of what Monica said. I push back a little bit there in that. I do think this is still happening. I don't think the TikTok era gets us out of it. If anything, I'd argue it happens more and faster in a world where, um, where, the pop culture zeitgeist isn't controlled by just four different mega corporations. I mean, there are massive corporations that are the big players, you know, your, your Disney, your, for instance, but um, also in a world where you have influencers being paid directly by products to pimp your products on Instagram and TikTok to the, to the masses. Like that's, I think that's still that, but also I think, uh, this I think this movie very much anticipates it because the one thing we haven't talked about with these cultural references um, is the very obvious flirting between Carson Daly, who is playing himself, and Melody, who is Tara Reid, who at the time of filming is Carson Daly's real life fiance. Now, it's weird in that they have this weird whirlwind tabloid filled relationship, which the reader, the viewer would be very very much aware of at the time um anybody who went to see this movie opening week which is seven people based on the box office um <laughs> they knew that tara reed and carson daly were dating so when they have this conversation where he's like in another life we could have been together you know like he like that's they're talking about our life right like that's the, what we're talking about but also like three months after this movie comes out, that relationship falls apart entirely and flames out in the tabloids in a way that literally everyone could have seen coming because they were obviously a tabloid couple, right? It's like when, when you see, when, whenever you see, so at time of, at time of recording, we're watching, uh, uh, what is her name? Uh, Start. Sophie Turner. Um, it's the Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas. Sophie Turner. <laughs> yes. 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 Sophie Turner. Yes. Yes. We're watching Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas's relationship flame out in the tabloids right now as we record. And I, I think when we were talking about this in our group chat, um, the I, I can't remember who sent it. To, who sent it? it? Was it you, Monica, that sent the, oh, sent the message it that they broke it up? Definitely. Like. All of the yeah, yeah, they could and have I, predicted I, that. And my gut reaction was right. My gut reaction was, oh, well, that took seven years longer than I expected it to be because they've been <laughs> together. They've been together for seven years, and it's like, wow, they managed to stay together and have two children. How is that possible? Of course, they're breaking up. <laughs> Literally, nothing about Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas says this relationship will last more than fifteen minutes. I think, like everybody else, oh they lost a couple of years of real time because of the pandemic. So yeah. seven years is more like four, five. Yeah, but I was like, but like literally everything about it is like, oh, they're flaming out. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and I and I think this was the Tara Reed Carson Daly relationship, and I think the movie wants to be that, right? Like, it wants you to invest in celebrity culture. It wants you to invest in the weirdness that is like, oh, look, we're going to manufacture Josie's relationship with Alan M because they've got to have their relationship that they actually do like each other. Will they? Won't they? But also, it's got to be plastered on top of like the this public display on stage. I I get what it's doing. It's trying to get us to buy into this, and I think that that's that's an interesting statement about the way we view celebrity. It's a it's a thing that makes me invested in celebrity culture. We we talk about it on the show. 
So I think that's a thing, even if it didn't work for me in its execution. But I do agree that it's trying to make you meta aware. Sure, and it, we have the fourth wall breaking moments throughout that are also sort of mm. trying to do similar things in mm. trying to remind us that this is based on a comic book, but also kind of not based on a comic book, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Alexandra saying, I, yeah. "Why are you here? I'm in. I'm in the comic because I'm, <laughs> I'm in the comic." Um, which they could have given her something else to do because right. they, because she literally has nothing no in this yeah. film. She has she. I mean, it, in the comic, Alexandra is arguably more important than Alexander, and I I get that part of the joke is that she's only there because she's in the comics. But it just she takes up a lot of screen time in this film to be taking up screen time to to not have a plot <laughs> yes. or, to, not, or a yeah, to not have uh, to not have a plot or a purpose or a characterization, really. Uh, Missy Pyle plays her, by the way. And um, who, by the way, is a phenomenal actress. She's very good in many, many things. Um, she just, you know, she's in Galaxy Quest. Um, so, if <laughs> she, so if you're listening, Missy. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I will agree um, on that front for sure. I think if, if we're going to look at like weak spots in this film, that sort of mm-hmm. character development is first and foremost for me, one of the sort of like real low points of the film. They need to give her something. I mean, even if they give her something to where like if she has nothing to do and she keeps showing up to aggressively do nothing, right. then that drives the point home. But as it is like, it, like it felt in particular her part of, Oh, I'm here because I'm in the comic. She says that. And then the movie is guilty of not, not ironically doing that, but literally just giving her nothing to do other than be a face because she happens to be in the comic. So like that's, that's, sure. that was my problem with it. It didn't, yeah. the irony yeah. didn't happen. You have to actually do something ironic in order for the irony to work. Right. And I honestly prefer the sort of savvy frenemy version of Alexander that we mm-hmm. see, especially in the more recent comics that that's more fully developed um, in ways mm-hmm. that I think are, are more productive than what we see here in the film um, as much mm-hmm. as I love the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we also just, I don't know if anyone's interested. We just, Talk about the soundtrack of the film at some point here, and yes. like, oh yeah, please. It is so full of bops. Like oh, yeah. I, I still cry. I don't know why you don't Matt see was me. like, "This is not a good movie." I was like, "All of these songs hit so much harder than they should be allowed to." They're all really, really good to the point where I was like, "Who did they have write the songs for oh, this Hanley. movie?" Like they must have spent a lot of money on the soundtrack. Oh, right? It was Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo who was doing all the singing there, and she actually made an appearance in the reunion. She's lovely. I love Letters to Cleo. Like my whole 90s heart is invested in Letters to Cleo. <laughs> like I just but like it's it's a beautiful set of choices. And again, like I, I I'm not joking. I literally still cry to You Don't See Me. Like that song like Aww. is an emotional song for me. I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is and maybe part of it's because I teach middle school now. And I'm literally like this is like every like left out middle schoolers ballad. But like <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's fantastic, right? Or, or or three small words. I mean, it's just great songs. Like so well done for uh, a film like this. Anyway, sorry. I just I love the soundtrack so much. If you can't tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that maybe what I enjoyed about it so much was that it did have that kind of rock edge to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have the like very cute little like we're gonna climb the box office like hard days night nods and yeah. like Spice World nods. Like, <laughs> I, I just. 
when we were getting their makeup that done. That was a really nice moment. Yeah. yeah. When, when we were getting their makeup done, there was a Go-Go's reference. They, they, they're all wearing the the face cream or whatever, and it was straight off the cover of the Go-Go's. The Go-Go's album, yeah. Yeah. So it was a weird choice to, I don't, I don't dislike it. It was an odd choice to make them as hard-rocking a band as they were for a band that should have been so... To to fulfill the space that they filled in 2001, they needed to be less rocky and more Britney. <laughs> I mean, like it just it was odd because um, DeJour, the boy group, were the Backstreet Boys. Like they were just doing yeah. a Backstreet Boys in sync thing. And then and then the Pussycats come out here and they're, you know, they're almost not corny enough, like um, for the joke to work. Like I like I didn't feel like they were a generic um, <laughs> like what, what what the film's trying to do is it's trying to say Wyatt can just make this band out of anything. And but they're not that they're, you know, I mean, they're trying too hard to be. I don't know Nirvana or something. You well, know? I, I, I think I think they wanted to give legitimacy to the the Pussycats as a band rather than make them a joke band. Right. Yeah. And and also, think, and it, yeah. And, I, and maybe a joke band might have worked better for me. I don't know. Sorry. Let's just yeah. remind us that 2001 was still filled with a lot of that, right? Like you've got oh yeah yeah I mean, yeah not so much in girl groups, right? But you've got Lenny Kravitz and Matchbox 20 and Lifehouse yes. and Train and Incubus and stuff. Like you've got a lot no. of rock still happening in the top yes. of the Billboard mm. charts. Yes, and a lot of it's but being not, sort of glamorized mm, through these sort of media channels in similar ways. So I, I don't think rock is completely out of. Oh no 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 I, no no my my point is not that um my point is not that rock isn't happening in 2001. My point is the bands, your Matchbox 20s that are what the and and even 2001 I think is when you're having this point where. Uh, Wayne, you're old enough to remember. Do you remember that point where Creed and Hoobastank and all these other these other essentially one hit wonder rock groups that were all vying for a very small piece of the pie were all happening at the same mm-hmm. time? That scene existed, but this film does not appear to be about that scene. This film appears to be about the scene that Britney and the Backstreet Boys were in, not the scene that Creed was in. And and which, I mean, which is odd. <laughs> it's it's just an odd. I, I want to argue though yeah. that it's um it is when we think about rock and roll history, like Beatles and their product placement mm-hmm. and in sync and their like Barbie dolls. Like we yes. are existing in a world of bands that sell lunch boxes mm-hmm. rather than a world of which is perhaps why this is so interesting to me that we've chosen to use rock and roll rather than pop. Because as much as we call the Beatles a rock group, like they're a pop group in the way mm-hmm. that NSYNC is oh, a pop group. Yeah, which has the like the school of rock, like ticket mm-hmm. to the Mitchy, don't get from like. And so it's very interesting that we are allowing Josie and the Pussycats to exist as a rock group that then is helping sell product. And we are describing yeah, well, rock and roll as well, the rock, an ideology too, yeah. that allows yeah, well, the government I mean, yeah, to I'm, create conformity when rock right. and roll existed for protest and pop like popular music exists for conformity and so that was maybe the like 
the one critique that I feel like I want to have about this film is is that it's a little bit confused but, about what music is. I don't well, know. But 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 the most merchandised band in the history of the world is Kiss. Right. Right. And uh, and, yeah. and, and, and they're yeah. and they're a rock band, you know, and then have Would made you, no apologies about mm-hmm. any of their merchandising from the beginning. And I think the I think also had a comic film, book. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Many, I think the film wants yeah, yeah. I think the film wants to make the wants to make the argument that rock is not immune to this. So there's one thing that is happening in 2001 is you've got these bands, you, you know, um, Huba Creed, as I, as I used to call them back in the, back in the day, um, uh, you know, these bands are, and I, and I, in fact, I'll even go, I'll go to bands that did make it. I'll say your Foo Fighters, um, uh, your, your, who else was around? Courtney Love made it. Smashing Pumpkins made it, right? Like even the bands that actually made it were at that time being overly critical of the pop scene. They were complaining that, you know, oh, I remember, um, I, two different styles of music, uh, but like this is a time when Limp Biscuit and Eminem were both like hitting it big, complaining about how talentless Britney Spears was. They both make references to it in their songs. And yet Britney is fighting for TRL time, just like Eminem and, and Fred Durstar, right? Like they're like, it's not like, yeah, they're, they're in the same industry. You're only making fun of the genre. And I think that the film wants to be smart about this. The, the film wants to say, yeah, you know what? Your legit hard rocking band that you love. They're just as much, you know, sellouts to the capitalist man as everybody else. And I think it wants to say that. I think that's why it's saying, hey, there's the moment at the end. was like, yeah, you know what? We're putting our subliminal messages in movies now. Ha ha ha. You know, like I, I, I get that it's trying to do that. It just feels so on the nose without going the step further of being on the like idiocracy goes on the nose and then literally throws it in your face and forces you to see that look you know it yeah it's what plants need you know like it, it's just missing just a little bit of extra oomph or it needs to be pulled back once more like so that that was my problem with it like i i think it wants to make that criticism of hard rock music it wants well, to get there I think there's also more to it than that, too. I mean, I think we also have to recognize 2001 as a sort of really strange cultural space, right? If we were to talk about, like, Y2K music, Y2K fashion, all these sorts of things, right? I think you are in a space where, you know, generations are not fixed things, but you are reckoning with the sort of um, the sort of end of the sort of grunge era and the sort of sort of coolness of apathy, et cetera. And then we're jumping into this sort of hyper popular sort of um, pop music and aesthetics, et cetera, right? And I think that, you know, as somebody who was still the end stages of coming of age in that time, right? Like, I think there's also just a lot of confusion um, mm-hmm. around music and fashion in that time and the sort of corresponding emotions that go with that, right? Like, I was trying to reckon with, like, what does it mean that I'm still here listening to Nirvana and Pearl Jam and whatnot, but also, like, I really love Britney Spears and I want to, like, dance to these boy bands, right? And there's a lot, I think, going on there. And I think having them as a sort of pop rock band of sorts kind of fits in with the messiness of that particular mm-hmm. moment culturally. Yeah. yeah, I think it wants to. I think it's I think it's trying to do a thing. And I think it's I think it would have been 
I almost wish Rachel Lee Cook's Josie character during her end speech where she gives this speech about how you're going to hear some music. It's not going to be the music that's on her album. I just want you to like it or don't. It's up to you, but I want you to be honest about it. Like, like I, I like that she was trying to stand up for the music there. I wish she'd gone the extra step of just saying, yeah, look, it's all manufactured. You know, popular culture is commercialism. Deal with it or don't. You know, like I like I wish she'd uh, she'd been critical of it a little more so that it takes away the ability to say, but not our music, you know, which is a kind of that's that's going back to your point before or maybe what I'm reading into your point before in which. Josie and the Pussycats as a film is the same mm-hmm. type of produced entertainment that it is yes. theoretically critiquing. Trying to critique. To be, right, right. Well, it's, I think it's, it's very on the nose critiquing that, but it's mm-hmm. also doing the exact same things it critiques. And I think that's also intentional, right? It's the idea that, <laughs> yes. hey, if, if, if she goes out and straight up critiques, this is all being manufactured, right? Then the film doesn't have the sort of entertainment industry's desire for a certain type of closure and resolution, right? Which means mm-hmm. that then the film can't stand in for the thing that it's critiquing, which I think it has to do so I'm, I'm spiraling here in sort of circles but <laughs> it's the idea that the film itself is the thing that it's warning you about right um, then you give right? that line to then you give that line to alexandra so that she has something to do but also because she's the character who knows that she's in a movie because she's in the comic book like you can do this it, it's like, like you just need to go the extra deadpool step you know like that's what i'm saying like you need to go a little bit further in order to make that land for me. Yeah, I don't think that it does. I think that, you know, like I think for me, like mm-hmm. it does its thing. Like the one moment of subtlety here is whether or not you're actually in that space yourself sure. as the audience fair, of that fair. film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think that I, mean, I get the point there. I think that for me, that's something that is productive. Mm-hmm. Alexander needs to pop up the incredible scene and say, buy the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I will say that there's something interesting also about, I mean, you're saying that this is Rachel Lee Cook's like sort of, you know, maybe not the best thing you've seen her in, right? Which is totally fair. She's, um, oh, see, yeah. Um, so she's most famous for She's All That, um, mm-hmm. which comes out like two years before this. So 1999. And then the other thing that she's famous for in this era is the This Is Your Brain on Drugs commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, in which she, or the second version of the This Is Your Brain on Drugs commercial, where in the original version of the guy says, this is your brain, and he pulls out an egg. This is your brain on drugs, and he cracks the egg into a frying pan, and he says, any questions? And then, like, that was, like, this this um, well-known, you know, just say no commercial. And then Rachel Lee Cook does a version of it a few years later where she says, this is your brain, shows the egg. This is your brain on drugs, cracks the egg. And then she says, and this is your brain on heroin. And she takes the frying pan and she slams it against the wall. And this mm-hmm. is your brain. It's like, and then, and then she just wrecks her entire kitchen. She just smashes everything. And this is what it does to your friends and your family. And she just destroys everything. And then she looks in this destroyed room. She goes, any questions? And that commercial basically makes her career after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, years and years later, she does, you know, Hallmark Christmas movies, mostly. Sure. <laughs> but, but, uh, I think my point was going to be that I think that mm-hmm. as an actor, one of the things that I like about her in this role is mm-hmm. her commitment to the utter corniness. Like she is going to be wooden and corny with her delivery of everything. And mm-hmm. somehow I think that that utter commitment to that actually adds a bit of pathos to some of the lines that she delivers, right? Like she delivers the line, something along the lines of what if nobody likes it right early in the film, right? Which mm-hmm. is cheesy and corny and like literally this sort of very broad generalized summation of, you know, what th- this moment of the film is about in terms of the, the characters. 
But something about the fact that she just delivers that as if she's delivering every other line that she's giving in this film, like actually, I feel like had a pathetic effect on me. Right. Like, I, just, I think she actually does a really good job in delivering that performance here. Um, and, you know, several moments at the end of the film. Similarly, right. Like, I think that her commitment to not slipping out of that character that she has created does actually, I think, imbue some of her lines with power that wouldn't otherwise be there. And so I, I just, I think there's some, I think there's things to praise of her acting performance mm-hmm. in this film as well. Mm-hmm. But I also love somebody who will commit to a bit endlessly. I mean, I, one of the things I love about everything everywhere all at once is the fact that they could have had a one-off joke with people with hot dog hands and they're like, yep, nope, we are committing no, to this bit no, this is- <laughs> through the end of the film, right? Like we are going to go with this and, and we will not let it die. Right. And so I, mm-hmm. I think there is something that is, I don't know, powerful to me about the ways in which certain types of commitments to things that otherwise would be easy to take unseriously. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's, it's powerful in its own way. I mean, for me, the best part of this movie is the monkey in the full body cast that shows up on screen for a full 0.2 seconds. Like, if you blink, you missed the monkey in a body cast. If you blinked on the line before about the reason that only one of them isn't beat to crap is because he knew the lyrics to some Metallica songs. Like, hilarious. Like, all of it to me is like, is this a movie that is beating you over the head? It also somehow is making you feel like you are participant within Easter egg culture because things are coming at you. Yes. I will make you like this map. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I also say it's, it's interesting. I taught this film. Um, I guess it would have been in what? 20, 2017. I taught this when I was teaching this first year seminar on infinite jest. And we had like this one off night after we were largely through the book and we sat down, we watched the film together with a bunch about, I don't know, it's probably about 20, maybe 15, 20 sort of college students in 2017, many of whom were barely born when this film came out. Right. And the thing that surprised me about this is that they were cracking up through the whole film. Like they found it and it wasn't just like laughing at the film, like they found it genuinely funny mm-hmm. um, and amusing. And I don't know necessarily what to do with that. Right. But like there's the part of me that's like, I love this film for nostalgic reasons. I love this film for where it fell in terms of the late 90s, early 2000s culture that was, you know, such a formative part of my life. But it also meant something to these kids that were like watching this film with me for the first time and never even heard of it. Um, and so I don't know, like, I, I don't know exactly what to call that, but like, there is a, there is a, a an uh, emotional resonance that this still has with people that don't even identify with that cultural moment. Um, and that mm. to me, I think is, is interesting. I mean, I, I did admittedly watch this movie with a friend who is a few years younger than me and had never heard of TRL, which one made me feel like we should just roll out the casket now. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I've officially aged so far that I am now out of touch with people in my cohort, not just my students. Uh, but there was something about like, I think, yeah, if you don't understand all the jokes, but you you can still laugh like that is a movie that does stand the test of time for me in terms of is this a good movie? And hey, Zima's coming back, I hear. Right. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of didn't hate Zima. <laughs> I don't know I knew that, that was going to be where we went with that. <laughs> I mean, it, it wasn't good. It wasn't bad. I mean, it it's sort of weird in that Zima is, is, is a weird deviation. And we're, we're, we're definitely in we've resolved nothing territory here. Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, Zima is a drink that at its time, 
it was obviously a goofy gimmick. I remember being at the, I was briefly in a fraternity. I remember uh, when Zima came out, we went and got a case just because we were like, is this going to be anything? This is going to be real stupid. And so we got a case and we're just, you know, there's like four or five of us just sitting around on a table going, all right, let's try this and going, huh? I mean, I guess it's the beer. And I remember like one of the guys is just like, I mean, maybe girls will like it. I guess we'll try it at the next party. Like it was literally like, like it wasn't, it it wasn't horrible. It was just like, like I think in a world where, where I know people who unironically drink Pab's blue ribbon and just like, Oh, I like this beer to me. It's crap because I'm a, you know, a snooty beer snob. So I'm like, no, this is not great. But like people, some, you know, if you just want a malted beverage, Zima was fine. I, yeah, my 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 Zima story. I went to the Decade, which is a legendary rock club here in Pittsburgh. Very it was a small so. bar. Was was yeah. It was a yeah, it, it was, was it, it was a dive that has dipped. It has divin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, but, but if you but if you look at one of the police albums, one of the guys in the police, not Sting, is wearing a shirt that has the the decade, the decade on it. logo. Yeah. Um, but he went to went to see a band and w- was with some friends, and I went up to the bar to get orders for everybody, and and two of the the women I was with wanted Zima, and I I went up to the uh, the young punkette working in the bar and uh, ordered some drinks and ended with uh, and two Zimas, and she just looked at me, he's like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> not in that bar oh my gosh i think it's it's interesting that like that story actually reminds me now back of the like, josie and the pussycats and sort of think about this other narrative that's in there right which is this insistence by wyatt frame that uh riverdale itself is a cultural wasteland and this sort of sense of there being these sort of like elite urban spaces right and then riverdale is this thing that like has no culture and like zima to me is like i don't know there there was this sort of looking down on it as this sort of like oh my gosh like you have no culture can you are you really ordering a zima right like right. i don't know there's something really weird about that connection to me right now but yeah this idea that this is you know beneath us in some ways right yeah. just as riverdale is riverdale this time when i heard that none of us. <laughs> I, I i just gonna say like when i heard that line about riverdale being a cultural wasteland um I, the second time watching it, or the second, recent, most recent time I watched it for this podcast, I, uh, I immediately thought of Riverdale the show. I'm sorry, Mav. Like, Riverdale's a cultural wasteland. I was like, you know, after, yeah, it really is. <laughs> As someone who has published on Riverdale, I, I, I you know, I, I have my own love for it. I, I, yeah, it is its own weird cultural wasteland of deserted tropes and weird attempts and experiments but i'm trying to <laughs> i'm well i mean we are in a roundabout way this yeah. is riverdale <laughs> is a big part of this of this film and and yes. it is riverdale the show might very well be my pca paper for next year i've been thinking about how i want to love, deal that. With that. <laughs> I love um, that and like the in particular the batshit insane last episode but like the last oh. season i think and i think there's a lot that i have to say about um the last season of riverdale and the way in which it tries to very much be a story on the spectrum of sexuality that a during the beat era um, which is which is a major subplot of the last season of Riverdale Um, not just the everybody's focusing on the last episode and the fact that there were a polyamorous quad in there but there's a lot of allusions to the free sexuality in the shadows of that era of of history so um right which makes Alan a weirdly weird character in Josie and the Pussycats right like he's supposed to be modeled as a sort of beatnik character but like 
Not really. No, he's mostly just, I mean, <laughs> what he is in this film, Alan um, is very much the, oh, I mean, I, like, you know, it, he's very much the generic idea of a hippie that yeah. exists in 2001. It's, right. um, he's like, like, I think that a more successful version of Alan becomes John Mayer one day. It's <laughs> the other thing this is. I was thinking that Alan is what Ken would think that Alan was from the Barbie movie if he visited, you know, the yeah. Yeah, it was um it was interesting. I do think that there were places this film could have gone. So I, I don't think it's an abysmal failure. Like I'm not gonna say, Oh my god, you like this movie. What's wrong with the three of you? But it just I, it didn't work for me, but I guess it's it's fine. I I mean <laughs> um I, I, I did how did the Josie and the Pussycats how did this rendition compare for you with the versions that we saw of them in Riverdale since that's such a big thing for you? I like well, so the versions of Josie and the Pussycats in the show Riverdale yeah. have no bearing whatsoever on my classic idea of Josie and the Pussycats. Like yeah. uh like I, I think um I think that the I think it was an interesting choice to make them an all black girl group or black girl plus Hispanic girl when you toss Veronica in because because canonically in the show, Veronica is sometimes a member. I think that there were interesting choices made with the Riverdale show that made them very, very different from any previous incarnation of what the pussycats are in a way that worked for me because I'm entirely able to say other than the name, this has nothing to do with the classic Josie and the Pussycats characters. Like I think that in the modern Archie comic, well, I shouldn't say the modern Archie comics in the Archie comics from right before the new Riverdale reboot. So when they start having a relationship forms between Archie at one point sort of gets sick of the Betty Veronica love triangle and he just starts dating Valerie. And that is an interesting choice to be made in Archie comics. Um, a, a, series that sort of for they get you married, know, right um in yeah, one they're, possible they're, they're like, like reality, one issue yeah, yeah. yes there yeah. are there are archie marries betty veronica and valerie in different alternate futures mm-hmm. and i think that that is an interesting choice to explore in the idyllic world of the riverdale mythos of comics a world which is so post-racial that it forgot to have black characters at all for the first 40 years of existence <laughs> so right. so there's it, there's there's, there's choices. It, it is a it is a interesting choice to make that I think the television series didn't do as much as it could have. It tried to do a backdoor pilot to a Josie series in the fifth season, I think, and then she appears on Katie Keene for a while. And none of it really goes anywhere. So I don't think it lands just like this, but I, but it doesn't bother me because it is so far divorced from what classic Josie is supposed to be. Gotcha. I was just curious because I think, you know, we were talking at one point about the history of Josie and the Pussycats. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure that in the animated series, Valerie counts as like the first black female lead. In a either in a Saturday morning cartoon or at least in a Hanna Barbera cartoon. In a Hanna Barbera um, cartoon, yes, yes, yeah. And I think that you know there is something that's explicit about race there. There's something that's explicit about race mm-hmm. in Josie and the Pussycats film, where you've got the mm-hmm. weird wise uncle baby face moment that pops up, right? Um, <laughs> sort of guiding her through this, right? And then you've obviously got the sort of decision to make the group all black in the Riverdale series, right? And we haven't really talked a lot about sort of how race doesn't does not play into the narrative with the film. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know if we should or not, but it does seem interesting to me that that is always there and sometimes unspoken, but it's definitely spoken in the film. Well, see, it is. It's it's 
it's understated, right? That's that's one of the things that they try to do subtly. Like, um, it's not just the that Wyatt is trying to break up the band, or you know, Riot is trying. He's not really trying to break up the band. He's trying to cause controversy in order to sell a narrative, right? But the one that he dumps on is the one black member, right? Like he forgets that Rosario exists. He or I'm sorry, that Valerie exists. The Rosario Dawson character. He forgets that she's there. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't remember you. We were leaving you behind. And then he sort of he remembers that Melody's there. So like I I, I see that they're doing a racial thing, but I also feel like they were a little too chicken to approach this completely directly in 2001 and say, I mean, hey, we are. Yeah, he didn't, call, much, he didn't yeah. make the joke about her being like, yeah, just like, you know, whatever group but with one who's incredibly tan or it's like TLC yeah, yeah. with two white chicks. I mean, there are moments yeah, that are much more explicit yeah. than that. Yeah, yeah, um, there's a few, but it's not it's not as. I mean, like, I think it's I think it's calling attention to him being out of touch more so than the music industry, which uh, sure, which I know why fair. it represents the music industry. But like I I would have I would have been a little harder on BMG Columbia, you know, like like I, I would have been a little harder on it if it were me, but it's not my thumb. So sure, that's right. So we resolve nothing. We've resolved nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm not sorry I watched I, it. So is that yeah, good enough, Monica? I, 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 no, I was <laughs> gonna say I, I'm. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm. I'm glad you pushed me to do this. I, I this is something I would never, probably never have watched just of my own accord. And I, I did. I enjoyed it. I, I found it interesting and everything we've talked about. So, mm-hmm. so thank you, Monica. Yes, <laughs> I'm never watching it again. But <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I will. We'll see. Uh, but I yeah, would, I'm not sorry. I've watched it. But I would rather watch this than any episode of all eight seasons of Riverdale. Oh, that's so incorrect. You're not on the show anymore. <laughs> you know, honestly, like, honestly, like uh, second that motion, right? Like, <laughs> uh, no, it's. I mean, it's it, not everything has to be for everybody. That's the entire point of the show. Like, what makes this show interesting is you know, is no, conform, Mav, conform. <laughs> okay, so it will so, not. So, so my question, Mav, is at what point do we add the subliminal messages to this episode? Right. Oh God, I got, I got the Mega Sound three thousand or eight thousand. Right, eight thousand. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. You will wear your pussy hat at the women's march. Oh wait. Uh, <laughs> uh this was fun. Yeah. Nick, thanks for joining us. This was fun. Oh, no, this was a blast. Absolutely. I appreciate you inviting me. Uh Nick, is there anything you'd like to plug for the lovely people out there listening? No, not necessarily. I just I love the fact that I'm actually doing this. And at the time we're recording this, I'm preparing to guest lecture at one of the local universities on Archie and Josie and the Pussycats comics this nice. week. So um, this has been a lovely chance to sort through a bunch of thoughts in terms of the long commerce history and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just I'm thrilled to sort of have these thoughts rolling about in my head before I go teach this week. Yeah. And, and Nick, if you haven't looked at it, you probably have given you're doing this. There's a book called The Twelfth Cent Archie that we refer to all oh, the yes. time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I've cited so, that in my I, I've written yeah. two essays on okay. Archie. I've got the asexuality and jughead essay that's in inks and then I've got the transmedial Riverdale and Archie yeah. essay that's in feminist yeah. media history yeah. so yeah, very I've, cool. I've, I've read Barbie's work yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. not not surprised by that but uh, yeah. just in case and, and, and for <laughs> our audience if you're interested in Archie that's a great book yeah. mm-hmm. there's also another one that just came out with McFarlane that's I think called Archie it's Archie and Sabrina something there's a uh, I'm going to blank on the name of it but it, it just came out with McFarlane I believe that is maybe worth checking out as well some people writing okay. on Riverdale and the Sabrina TV show if you're interested in sort of more of this okay. diverse yeah cool it's just called the Archie Sabrina universe essays uh, the comics awesome. and thank you for adaptation. that up for me because I'm an idiot <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, Wayne. Oh, come on. You know better than that. <laughs> All right, fine. Monica, is there anything you want to play? You know what? Um, since we still haven't, as a consensus, decided uh, what, like, the de facto social media is going to be for queer academics, I started a Letterboxd instead. So maybe you want to follow me on Letterboxd since we seem to be doing a lot of movies over here, especially a lot of is this a good movie? I'm probably going to put together a is this a good movie list over on Letterboxd in which uh, you could offer some suggestions for future episodes. So um, you can find me at Monica Marvelous. Now, I want to point out that I do follow Monica on Letterboxd because she reminded me that I should do that. And she never followed me back. So, you know, and and I know her in real life. So, you know, know, your mileage may vary. (laughs) To quote somebody in this film, right? What is the point of being famous if not to tell the people who hated you in high school or in this case, have podcasted with you to kiss your ass, right? (laughs) There's Monica's version of Josie and the Pussycats on Letterboxd. Uh, I feel sad. (laughs) Uh, You can follow me on whatever social media exists at Chris Maverick with the exception of Letterboxd where I am at C Maverick because oddly enough someone else took Chris Maverick and it's not me and I don't know why but there was like there was a Chris Maverick there I, like I was like oh did I sign up for before and I just forgot and no it was someone else's account that is that it's watched five movies ever and they're not me so uh, so I was like oh well screw you dude um, but at C Maverick on Letterboxd everywhere else I'm at Chris Maverick I would like um, the listeners the to sh- know that uh, I just followed you in real time back on Letterboxd because I've been shamed into it <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is great because like no to be fair she, had, she hadn't announced it anywhere so literally I think I was like her only follower <laughs> It was just like, and I have none. I mean, I guess I have one now. Like, like it was like, like, like Monica's letterbox was. She had a bunch of movies that she added, and she had one follower, which was me, and was following nobody. So it's like, oh, she's just you know infinitely more famous than I am. Is where she's at. <laughs> Uh, oh, I should also mention, uh, in addition to following me on wherever, um, I should remind people because I tend to forget. I, we talked about this on social media. So oh, yeah. I'm editing a collection for McFarland Press, the, the the people who published the book that Nick was talking about, the Archie Sabrina book. Well, I'm doing a book on Batman or not Batman. It's called Batman Also Starring. So it's a book of academic essays on characters from the Batman universe who are not Batman and not important enough to warrant their own collection of essays, which means I'm not looking for essays on Nightwing, not looking for essays on Batgirl or Batwoman. I'm looking for essays on Carrie Kelly, on Silver St. Cloud, Alfred Pennyworth. This is the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And, and <laughs> Alfred, Alfred is like the most famous. And Alfred's like, on that line. I'm like, mm, yeah. yeah, okay. If you if you got if you got a good pitch, you know. So like, yeah, the pitches are starting to come in. I've been enjoying reading those, and you know, well, I'll I'll, I'll be mentioning this every week for the next, you know, basically month and a half. But while I'm still taking pitches, but if you're interested in that, please see my call for papers that is posted in the show notes, and send us, uh, send me, us. I'm, I'm the editor. Um, send me a message with your pitch for an article, and we'll be talking about that. You know, I guess in about a year and a half when it when that book's coming out. I'm so I'm really excited about that. Beyond that, 
You can follow the show uh, right now on Facebook, or I refuse to call it its new name, so Twitter, <laughs> um, until we discover, as Monica said, what's going to be the social media side of the future. I don't know, but, you know, we'll have a show account there somewhere. But for now, old social media is where you can follow us at Vox Popcast, and you can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com where we talk about what we're talking about next week. And you can leave us comments on this or any other show. You can pitch yourself as a guest. You can just tell us what you think about what we're saying. If you enjoy the show, and we certainly hope you do, then please subscribe to us on iTunes or Pandora, Spotify, wherever the hell you get podcasts from. Do us a favor, leave us a five-star review, especially on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. That gooses the algorithm, makes us more popular and really helps us out. I would like to thank Maximilian of Thought Forum Music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd once again like to thank Nick for joining us. I'd like to thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye! Bye. Bye.